And uh, we're in the series that we're called, calling Greater Than, and it comes from a verse in 1 John chapter 4, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And uh, so we're going to um, start walking through it. Just a moment, though, is, is this last Wednesday was Veterans Day. We have a couple of veterans in here. Thank you for those that served. I know the Bowdens. Is there anyone else that was a veteran other than the Bowdens? Wow, you get all of the love this morning. So um, thanks for those who have served. Um, and uh, crazy times, lots to pray about. I'm praying that this message will be encouraging to you this morning. As is, uh, the goal was is to cover 12 verses. When I got into it, um, I, I was in far enough and I thought, oh no, I got to cut this back. And so we're going to cover five verses and then at the end we're going to take communion together. If you Google the, Google the question, what does it mean to be a Christian, you get 1.7 billion results. If you type in just Christian, you get 1.8 billion results. If you narrow that down by putting quotes around it, you still get hundreds of millions of results. Um, that's, that's a lot of results. One of the articles um, that I read this week was an interview with Matthew Bowman, who's a historian, who's written quite a bit on the subject, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he argues that Christian, according to most Americans, is a pretty elusive term. He went so far as to say that what it means to be a Christian in most people's minds um, is, is very contested and that it's often been mixed up or mixed in with republicanism, clean living, church attendance, social justice, family faith, liberalism, um, and so many other things that it seems like that everyone has their own idea of what it means to be a Christian, whether it's negative or positive. So how do we navigate the complexity of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus in our day? How do we find real faith instead of a cultural faith or a family faith? How do we know that we're really where God wants us to be? And how can that be something, being a Christian, how can that be something that we come to and embrace with humility? John helps us to understand this in the New Testament book of 1 John. Now, remember that John was the brother of James, the other disciple, son of Zebedee, along with his brother, one of the original 12 disciples. He wrote the gospel of John that bears his name. He wrote three letters of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, He wrote Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. Even though there are several people with the name John, and when you read John, you notice that it doesn't begin by saying, this is John. Um, Yet, even then, we believe that it was John who wrote, not just the Gospel of John, but these three letters in Revelation. And we're not saying this just because of a guess. We're saying this because the early church firmly believed and said that it was John that wrote these letters. There are several individuals who pointed to John as the writer. Polycarp, who was discipled by John, tells us that it was John who wrote these letters. The Gospel of John, the letters, and then Revelation. Irenaeus, who lived close to Ephesus shortly after John's death, also said that John wrote these letters. 
it's important for us to understand that because I, I'm hearing more and more often, and some of it's because of um, non-Christians that have been writing, and they're saying is, is that the New Testament books, they were written hundreds of years after the death of Jesus. A lot of them are saying four to 500 years after the death of Jesus. We hear a lot about fake news. That's fake news, okay? And the reason we can say that is, is because these early followers of Jesus, many of them historians and early church fathers, they were able to point out these New Testament books and say these were from individuals like John. And they were directly connected um, or very um, closely connected to those disciples. And so don't believe everything that you hear when people says that the Bible came about hundreds of years later. That's just, it's just not true. John's letters are often overlooked, but they're filled with insight about what it means to know God and to live according to his calling, what it means to be a Christian. First John is a letter that reads a lot like a sermon and is written to spiritually confused Christians who need to know what it means to live the life of faith and to live a life of obedience to God. So why are they confused, one might ask. They're confused because a group of people who are part of the church, take that with a grain of salt, because John said that they had left, and if they'd really been a part of the church, then they never would have left in the first place. But a group of people who were a part of the church had left and had split off from the church and were accusing John of of not teaching right things about Jesus. And so John wants to encourage those that are, have, uh, have stayed. And he wants to encourage them about that teaching, which he says, that which you have heard from the beginning, the things that you've heard from the very beginning about Jesus are true. And he wants to help them align their hearts with true faith, right living, and a right love towards each other. And so John is, um, John is very circular in his writing in 1 John. And so 1 John is not linear in nature. Like John doesn't say, hey, here's one point and here's the next point and here's the next point. Instead, it's very circular and he comes back to the same themes over and over again. So it can be a little bit confusing and he seems like he repeats himself a lot. And so I want you to think of 1 John as being like a song that has a little bit of a verse and, a, and then a chorus and then a little bit of a verse and a chorus, but with a lot more chorus than verses, Okay. That's, that's how I want you to think of 1 John. And there are three topics. There are three topics and all of them are in our passage today. And our passage today is only five verses. And here's the three topics is, is right belief in Jesus, right love towards others, particularly followers of Jesus, and then a right attitude about sin. These are, these are three topics that are found all throughout 1 John, but they're found in these five verses, all three of them in just these five verses. And so let's read this um, together. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So um, John wants his readers to know the truth about God. 
And it's important for us to understand that the way John defines truth is very different from the way our culture defines truth today. He has a very different meaning than the definition of truth that you're going to find in our culture today. In the last several months, I've been exchanging emails with Dr. Karen Jobes, who has probably written more as a scholar. She's written more on these New Testament books than almost anyone out there. She's just brilliant, and, and she's a great teacher, and, and she's taught more on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John than most other people. And, uh, and so I've been exchanging emails with her, and one of the things that Dr. Jobs, Jobs does when she's teaching is that she points out the difference between the way that our culture defines truth and the way that John defines truth, because she wants her students to understand that when our culture talks about truth, that that's not the way that we're supposed to see truth because truth in our culture is relative. It means whatever's true for you may not be true for me. And she says, that's not the way that John defines truth. John says there is a truth and it is 100% true and it's true for everyone. Most people today think of the Bible as a religious artifact or as just one religious option among many. A lot of people have no problem coming to the Christian faith and to Buddhism. I mean, I literally hear people describing themselves as a Christian Buddhist or a Christian uh, or believing in Christian humanism, which is really a mix of Marxism and Christianity. Um, Or you can fill in the blank. It's just this blending of different religious beliefs. They're... um, There is a buffet of religious options in our culture today. And that was true for John's readers also. There was a buffet of religious options for them and they faced the temptation to mix and and match based on their preferences. And by all appearances, that's what the people who left the church were doing is, is they were taking a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of maybe Greek and Roman mythology and Greek and Roman platonic thought. That means thought that was developed by Plato. And all of this philosophy, and they were mixing it all in together. And the church of that day faced significant pressure from Greco-Roman culture and philosophy to adopt polytheism. Literally physical pressure that if they didn't adopt it, that they could be ostracized or even persecuted, sometimes to their death. They faced a ton of pressure from many views, many beliefs. That's the pressure that we're facing today. It's the pressure to be tolerant of all views, all religious beliefs, all values, with the exception of any value that would claim to be true, fully true. Is that you're tolerant so long as you accept anything that anyone believes. But if you say that, no, I don't think that's right, and you express any kind of intolerance, then you'll be judged and possibly in future years even persecuted. Believe it or not, on some college campuses today, there's a tentativity to condemn Hitler because he thought he was doing the right thing. That kind of thinking is becoming more and more prevalent. John wants his readers to know and us to know that there is real truth, that there is definitive truth, and that truth is found in the gospel message about Jesus. 
Now, these three themes that I just mentioned are found over and over again in 1 John, and we come back to them in chapter 5. The first one is his right belief about Jesus. Right belief in Jesus is essential to what it means to be a Christian. Earlier, John said that those who left essentially seemed to be Christians, but they weren't. And their leaving was proof of it. They didn't leave for the right reasons. And so this isn't saying that you can never go to another church, that if churches actually open up the word of God and they actually teach the word as being the word of God, then, then those are churches that we should, we should commit ourselves to. And so if I, if I ever start preaching without using the Bible, it's a good time to leave. Okay, this isn't what John is talking about. He's talking about people that wanted to add to, mix and match a whole bunch of things. And John said, no, there is right teaching about Jesus. Right belief about Jesus, and this is in verse one, believes that Jesus is the Christ. Those that believe that Jesus is the Christ are born of God. That's verse one. Jesus is the Christ. When, when, when you see Christ in the Bible, that means Messiah. That means Savior. That means that he is one worth following, giving your whole life to, everything to, bringing your sin to and giving your sin to him so that he can take it away, that he is Messiah. In fact, John goes so far as to say, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Earlier in in 1 John, John said that anyone who denies the humanity of Jesus, that he came in the flesh, Anyone who denies the humanity of Jesus is an antichrist. Now he says that that anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born again. Born again language is really important here when it comes to understanding what it means to be a Christian. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you can go and you can read this later, that a person has to be born again, which is really confusing, especially to an adult, a full-grown man like Nicodemus, because he's listening to Jesus, and Jesus starts talking about being born again, and Nicodemus says, hey, how's that even possible? Do I have to go climb into my mother's womb again? And that, um, that was very confusing to Nicodemus. Thankfully, Jesus didn't say, no, you don't have to do that. He tells Nicodemus that he's speaking of heavenly things. And that new birth is directly tied to believing in God's work through his son and that faith in the son of God moves us from darkness to light. And and John uses these pictures um, from the words of Jesus to help us understand what it means to be a Christian. Is he says that you have to be born again and that it's a heavenly birth. It's not an earthly birth. And we're born on earth in one way, but we're born to heaven in a whole nother way. And there's a transition that takes place. And it's, it's like that transition from darkness to light. And that brings about change in our hearts and in our lives. This new birth is supernatural. This is what John Stott says. He says the new birth is a supernatural event which takes us out of the sphere of the world where Satan rules and into the family of God. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. And that comes from uh, Colossians 1.13, which is just really a, a marvelous um, verse about we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son, the kingdom of the son that he loves. The spell of the old life is broken. 
The fascination with the world has lost its appeal. And, and when you think about that is the spell of the old life is broken. The fascination with this world. And, and you know, you think about it is, is that there are a lot of things that really pull on us. There's a lot of temptations out there. And if that fascination with the world is still a part of your life, then there's probably a couple of things that might be going on. The first, the first one might be this, is that you've never fully submitted yourself to Jesus. You've never fully given your life to Jesus. Is, is that you, you believe in Jesus, you believe that he's the Messiah, but you've never fully submitted your life to Jesus. And so that might be the cases is that there's still all of these temptations, there's addictions, there's all kinds of things that still continue to have a hold on your life, even though you believe that Jesus is the son of God and you believe that he's the Messiah, but you've never fully submitted your whole life to him. And so there's still a little bit of this fascination with the world. You kind of come back and you, and you, kind, of, you kind of say those prayers and you kind of say, Jesus, help me. And, and you have all of those things, but there's still this fascination with the world. And that might be one of the things that's happening. And, and there, there's, there's this, this call to give your whole life to Jesus. And then will there still be times where things pop up in life, where there's things that are going on? And the picture that I had in the first service is, is that it's kind of like dead skin. You know, it's kind of flaking there and you, you, you look in the mirror and you didn't notice it was there. And all day long, you've been walking around with this flake of skin or, or a hanging bug, right? It's kind of like that. And, and it's, it's kind of like is, is when we see that, when we find that in our lives, we want to brush it off. We want to we wanna get rid of it because it's, it's this thing that is kind of gross and, and, and we can't believe that we've been walking around like that all, the day, all day. And sometimes is, is that that's how it appears is that we're fully committed to Christ, but there's still this dead skin, this dead part of our life that just seems to hang on and we need to brush it off. And so those might be a couple of the things that are going on. Now, if you're more interested in the world than interested in Jesus, then this isn't even going to make sense to you probably. And if it's starting to make sense, it's because God's calling you to put your faith in Jesus and to follow him and to be obedient to him. The word believe, the word faith appears in verses one, verses, verse one, verse four, and verse five. John says that those who believe that Jesus is the Christ have been born again. And that faith is the essential characteristic that helps us overcome the world. Three times in three sentences, John uses the phrase, overcome the world. As though he wants to hammer home the point. John specifically asks, who is it that overcomes the world? Answer, those who believe that Jesus is the son of God. That language overcomes the world should trigger something in our minds. John, quoting Jesus in John 16, 33, writes the words of Jesus to his disciples. And this is just before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus has been telling them about what's going to happen. And he, he says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now John tells us that overcoming the world is not just the work of Jesus, but that we can overcome the world by believing that Jesus is the son of God. We cannot overcome the world without believing in Jesus. It is not possible. 
Interestingly, when you read these five verses, they both begin with and end with believing. Believing that Jesus is the Christ. Believing that he is the Son of God. In between, we find these other elements of the Christian life. We said the first one is right belief about Jesus. The second one is a right love towards others. And, and that's primarily believers. Yes, we are called to love everyone. We're even called to love our enemies. But we first show that love by loving the body of Christ, other children of God. In fact, is, is our love for each other should be so odd, so crazy. Our care for each other, our willingness to encourage each other, even hold each other accountable to living the good life, that it should be so crazy. It should be such a crazy of love that the world looks at it and says, why do you, why do, you do so much for that person? And it's because we're called to love one another and to bear each other's burdens and to care for each other. And so we're called to these things. New birth translates into a love for God and a love for the children of God, verse one. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God. It is impossible to love the children of God without first loving God, and it's impossible to love God without loving the children of God. They are inseparable. We love God. We love God by loving the children of God. We love the children of God. And when we do, we love God. They go together. This is not to say that these things are easy. I mean, for those of you that know me well, you know that sometimes I'm annoying. And it's okay because you're annoying too. That was a good amen. Some of you should be saying amen and you haven't. (laughs) Um, It doesn't mean that it's easy. At times we annoy each other. At times we have preferences and they're different preferences. And and so because of our preferences, we kind of get caught up with is why don't they like what I like? And, And there can be arguments about those little or lesser things. But we're still called to love each other. And when we love each other, we're loving God. And when we love God, we love each other. And the the tying of the two together, John is saying that our love becomes like God's love when we love God by loving God's children. And it's a God kind of love. It's an undeserved love. It's an unearned love. But a love that is practically applied every day as we serve and as we sacrifice and as we carry each other's burdens exactly the way that Jesus did. It's that loving each other in spite of the dead skin and the hanging book. (laughs) Yes. Unearned, undeserved, but still loving. John says that the person who believes that Jesus is the Christ will follow his commands. And that love for God and love for his children gets lived out morally. This isn't just a feeling. And so there is a moral side to this. It's not just a feeling. It's not just I believe in Jesus, but then I go out and I do what I want to do. It gets lived out morally. It's not just an emotion. When we believe that the Jesus of history is also the Christ, it changes the way that we live. We should not find it difficult to express our love by a by obeying God's commands, by being obedient. Because his commands are not burdensome, is what John says. That word burdensome means irksome. They're not irksome. 
the obsessive regulations of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus talked about it. He said, you lay heavy burdens on people that you yourselves cannot keep. Just a bunch of rules, human rules. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Paul says, God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. It's the will of an all-loving, all-wise Father who seeks our highest welfare, that calls us and beckons us to higher things, to better things, to better ways of living. And when God our Father gives us commands and calls us to obedience, it's because he loves us and he knows that when we do things that are against his will, that it brings pain into our lives or into the lives of others and that it tears us away from him maybe not from his salvation, but it tears us away from him. It hinders our prayers. It destroys our life. It hurts our marriages. It literally destroys marriages. It destroys relationships. When we do our own thing or we do what the world asks us to do instead of what God asks us to do and because he is a loving and a good father, it's like he's saying, don't go over that cliff. It will hurt you or it's suicidal. Don't. Because he loves us. This is why Paul in Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, or where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When it says you died, it says that that's that old life. That's, the, the, that's that, that old life that just shouldn't be a part anymore because there's a new life. And anything that, that kind of clings on with the old is dead skin. It's part of the dead stuff. It just hasn't figured out that it's dead yet. And so we need to brush it off. We need to get rid of it. And so you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So the old is gone. The new has come. Our love for God and our love for his people is always practical and active. And it gets worked out in everyday life as we follow his commands. Why are his commands not burdensome? Is it because they're easy? I would never say that. The commands of God will always seem like a burden to the world. When people think of the Bible and often of Christians, they think about the do nots, the should nots, and the can nots. And that's a lot of nots. Even a lot of people who claim to be Christians think that it's impossible or intolerable to actually try to do what the Bible says to do. This is where it's important to think again about what it means to overcome the world. It's not something that is in us that causes us to overcome the world or that makes us overcome the world. Rather, it's something that God has done for us And then in us, that makes it possible for us to love him, love his children and live out his commands. And what is that? 
What has he done? John says that he's given us new birth. And that new birth, it doesn't come because we went from 49%, um, 49% good and therefore bad to 51% good and therefore good. No, it's not because our good works outweigh our bad works. It's because we recognize that no matter how good we are, that we're still not good enough, that our sin condemns us. And so we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, would you take away our sin? And he says, yes, I'll not only take away your sin, but I'll take away the deadness that comes with your sin. And I'll, I'll, I'll die for it on the cross. And therefore that old life, that old sin is dead on the cross and you get a new birth and it's a heavenly birth. That new birth means that we're no longer controlled by the old person. We are a new person made new by God's spirit, by faith in Jesus. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And then I love what Paul says a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him... This is Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus, Jesus took that sin. Jesus died for the sin. Literally, he took that sin into himself and that sin was crucified on the cross that we could have the righteousness of Christ. In fact, Paul says we are the righteousness of Christ. In the early 1900s, one devotional writer pointed out that for John's readers, this was revolutionary and a daring first century claim that the victory does not belong to Rome, which then reigns supreme, but to Christ And that Christ gives us the victory that overcomes the world and that that as believers, that our victory is in Christ and to the humble believer, we're called to that victory. For them, it looked like the culture was winning. And it's revolutionary to hear that now they have overcome because of Christ. I would argue that the same is true for us. The victory does not belong to what country or what political party or philosophy reigns here on earth, but to Jesus Christ. And by new birth to the humble believer in Christ, right now it might seem like the coronavirus reigns supreme. Or that the superpowers of this world reign supreme or fill in the blank reigns supreme. If you're having health problems right now, it's hard to feel like that they don't reign supreme in your life. Victory isn't to the things that might seem most victorious. Victory is so conclusive that it overcomes the world with all of its stuff. And the world is defined by John and the rest of the Bible as anything that stands in opposition to God. It's the anger that we see in our culture and in humanity. It's the selfishness that we see that often 
comes up in ourselves. It's the false kinds of love that are sold to us in this world. It's the philosophies that say that there's no real truth. And I could go on and on. The victory isn't even our ability to do good things. The victory goes deeper. It goes to new birth, which is only something that God can do. Only God can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Only God can take a sinner and turn the sinner's heart towards righteousness. Only God can change the old people, not just the old way of thinking and the old way of believing and the old living, but literally all of the old into something radically new, something so radical that it's described as new birth. So radical that it changes everything about us, the way that we think, the way that we live, our values, our commitments, everything. There was a missionary by the name of Jim Patton. This was a long time ago, over 100 years ago. And he was translating scripture uh, for the South Sea Islanders. Interestingly, is, is, I read about this this week, is Jim Patton was a part of a missions conference. And at the missions conference, there were, there were hundreds of people that were there. And they, um, some of the leaders got up and said, we'd love it if someone would go to the South Sea Islanders and um, would bring the message of Christ to the South Sea Islanders, and no one raised their hand. And part of the reason why no one raised their hand is, is because it was well known that, um, that on these islands that cannibalism was a large part of the culture. But Jim um, Patton, um, he kept on feeling like that someone needed to go, and, and the longer that he listened, the more that he felt like that God was saying that he should stand up and just yell, here I, I am, send me, which is a kind of an Isaiah-like response. And he still wanted to stand up in the midst of that congregation and say, is, is I'll go, is here I am, send me. But he was so scared that it was just feeling that it was all emotions that he decided to wait a couple of days and pray about it. And after a couple of days of prayer, at the end of the conference, he said, here I am, send me. And one of the older men came up to him and cautioned him against it. And he said, you know that there are cannibals there. And Jim said, and he said this to an older man, as he said, in a few years, you're going to die and you're going to be food for worms. What does it matter if I'm food for worms or food for cannibals? As long as I've been obedient. And he went into the South Sea. And he was translating scripture into the heart language of those people. And he was unable to find a word in their vocabulary that had the concept of faith and believing. That, 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 that idea of belief, trust, faith. He had no idea how he was going to convey it because they literally did not have a word for it. And one day when he was in his hut and he was translating, a native came running in, uh, up the stairs and he came into um, Patton's study and he flopped down on a chair, exhausted. And he said to Patton, it's so good to rest my whole weight in this chair. And John Patton had his word. Faith is resting your whole weight on God. All of who you are, 
and everything that you will be, resting your whole weight on God. And that went into the translation of their New Testament and helped bring that civilization of natives to Christ. Those islands are called the Hebrides. There was a, 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 a massive move among the people there to put their faith in Jesus. Believing is putting your whole weight on God. Resting everything that you are in him. Believing that if God said it, then it's true and we're to believe it. Father and Lord God, thanks for your grace, for your mercy, for the testimony of your word, for John, who reminds us that we are to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that when we love you, that we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ and all others. And then when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're loving you. And that, um, that out of that love for each other and out of our love for you, that we will pursue obedience. And that obedience is by faith, by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. So Lord, as we go into another week, Lord, may you just continue to teach us. Be with us, Lord. Call these things back. Lord, when we falter or when we fail, help us to remember that it's not about us, that Jesus already has the victory, but that we would repent and that we'd come and say, Jesus, forgive me. This has helped me to live in the victory. Help me to be the one that you've called me to be. But thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to depend on my perfection, that I get to depend on your perfection. But help me to be obedient. Help me to pursue obedience in every way. And then one day to come into your presence. Into that heavenly presence that we're invited into. And help me to look forward to that even now. Father, thank you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.